Aloha from Hawaii, Gamer Nation. This is Adder Talon. Do you hear that, Sam Wentworth? That is the sound of a challenge being issued. Can you accept the challenge? Guess I'll never know, since I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. Execute Order 66. Greetings, Gamer Nation. This is Sunday, September 27, 2009, and you've reached the Order 66 podcast, episode number 82 of this, the only... Wait a second. Actually, I'm GM Dave. What I was about to say will be said by none other than GM Chris. Hello, sir. What? What is up, Gamer Nation? Hello, Dave. How are you? I'm good. You're good. And uh, what you were about to say, and you're welcome to say, it's not something I have to say at all, um, is uh, that this is, of course, the Order 66 podcast. For those who may be tuning in for the very first time, the only podcast devoted to Star Wars Saga Edition role-playing. And, um, man, we, uh, we're we kind of excited to be here, I guess, because uh, we're going to have a, very, uh, a couple of very special guests on with us this evening. And uh, it's going to be good stuff. Goodness. Goodness. No, no Twi'lek goodness. No Twi'lek goodness. So it's not greatness. No. It's just goodness. No, no. No, no TG tonight. No TG tonight. But she does, she, does, she will be joining us in spirit. Ah, uh, yes. 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 Spirit we'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, man. Busy week, man. I had an awesome day yesterday at uh, Reaper. Um, I was up at Reaper Minis and had a huge game day on Saturday. Played some Star Wars Saga Edition and then board gamed until our eyes bled pretty much. And I, I had to drive home very tired. That's what I heard. Yes, it was greatness. Cat was there. Strider was there. Tim was there. It was, it was glory. It was <laughs> absolute glory. And the city of Doors crew, of course, um, because they're all you know Reaperites, so that that's very you know essential. And Tenny, Tenny was there. Fun was had. Well, that's all. good, dude. That's awesome, man. Sounds like y'all very had a great stuff. weekend. Awesome. Yeah, it was. It was. It was really good. It was awesome. Really good. Awesome. Accessing. Ah, good. New acquisitions. Greetings, Gamer Nation. My designation is KCK Sim, and this is your Hollow News Net update. Yeah. Ah, yes. Well, a fair bit has happened on the network, I dare say. We've had some pretty, uh, well, there's been a lot of stuff posted. A lot of stuff. We've had tremendous doings. And I wish I, I, I really wish I had that song, you know, The Race is On and Here Comes Pride in the Backstretch. <laughs> because Game On is now even 
with RFH. With 31 episodes apiece. Can you believe that? I thought that? it was 30. Negative. 31 hit today. Just now. So a sneak attack number 30 about racing games. And then number 31 about modular game boards. Up Yowzer. this week. From Yowzer. Yeah. The Ray Kinsella principle hit like moments ago. <laughs> and they are, for the time being, equal to RFH. N- neck and neck? Indeed. Very, However. Very nice. I, well, do you know who's been just a just a, a busy, busy son of a gun? Um, Jesus. No. Jesus is dead. Okay. Who? But he's probably still very busy. Um, no, Brev. Who, who is at least you know as far as people I've met is probably as close to Jesus as I can get. Um, Brev, <laughs> uh, Minnie's Mayhem, Brev and Tenny uh, bring us episode fifteen where they just maul us to death. They examine Darth Maul and all of his silenced, angry, mini tattooed glory. Um, and it's uh, I haven't had a chance to hear the episode yet, but uh, Brev's Brev's promised me it's excellent, and he's rarely wrong. He's rarely wrong. So very rarely. Very rarely. <laughs> so speaking of that, two episodes of Cinematic Attic have come up. No! Three. Uh, three. Oh, that's right. He said another one was coming up. Episode 10 is posting, like, right now. That's right. Nine was up. And nine was actually up before we made fun of him that it wasn't going to be up. And so we... Yeah, we, we, I just, I'm just a moron and forgot to check the feed, like, until, you know, show, I finalized show notes, like, a couple hours before the show, and I didn't check the feed again. So, yeah, yeah, it happens. Sorry. Sorry, Brev. I feel you, bro. It's a big sorry. Yeah. So Real 9 was uh, what? Uh, Alien Districts. Real- right. And then uh, special episode one was about Batman. All about Batman. That's right. Completing the trifecta of Batman podcast. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. Oh, yes. And then Real 10 was what? I didn't even see. Real 10 is what? I, I-, I haven't checked the feed yet, so I'm not sure, but I'm sure we can look right now. Oh, well. Okay. Well, okay. (laughs) While you're looking, what I will do is welcome back the latest episode of Small But Vicious Podcast. Old School and Shibuda have brought us another episode for the Warhammer Fantasy RPG that the Gamer Nation simply cannot live without. The Small But Vicious Podcast. You guys check them out. D20radio.com. It's very cool. By the way, real 10 of Cinematic Addict is The Countdown Begins. The and this is the one they've actually been begins. prepping for for a while. It was like their big 10th episode where Jed and Brad, they talk about like the, the, the 10 films that have influenced them from the day they were born up until their very last oh, birthdays. Oh, right. Yeah. So, you know, like my, our, basically our favorite films and what we think is the most awesomeness of awesomeness. So there is that. Very cool. Right. Also, um, Brew City Gamers uh, is back. Uh, Milwaukee's favorite gaming sons please our eardrums yet again with episode 34, Clear and Sunny, and they talk ACD game day. Uh, and then uh, just do their thing, which is always fun. I just love to listen to those guys just sit around and talk about their gaming. I know. It's greatness. I know. 35 it's should be up tonight because they seem to produce right about the same time we do. They do. They do. In fact, he mentioned recently on the forums they were editing. He was editing today. So Yeah, so I bet it'll be there. Uh-huh. And what, dude? City of Doors? City of Doors, number four. The one yeah. with the island vacation. Ah, the one with the island vacation. <laughs> That's like the fluffiest RPG podcast. It's glory. And what do they delve into, man? Like like Deadlands? Yeah. Um, yep. And uh, the, the island reference, like, they, they talk about like, uh, like, you, like a lot of Dr. Evilness in this, in this episode. They talk about using islands in your campaign. Very good. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> very, very nice. 
So but, um, yeah, yeah. To tell tell us about um tell us about this contest, man. Yeah. So you'll notice Batman here and there with Meanwhile, the Super Gaming Podcast, the Minus World, and Cinematic Attic have all joined forces for a special Batman Arkham Asylum contest. So listen to all three of their Batman-themed podcasts. Collect all the clues and be the first to post what three phrases are uniquely Batman within each podcast and win a free, brand-new copy of Batman Arkham Asylum. So, to clarify, awesome. for each show there will be a phrase. One in each show that is something very, very, very Batman. Be the first poster to reply in the contest thread on the cinematic attic boards with all three correct phrases and you will win a copy of said Vidya game. <laughs> How about that? How about that? And convention craziness, boys and girls. If you guys are in the southern area of the US of A um, or you just like to travel to a nice little con, we, there is one coming up. In particular, in the town of Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock Game Con 2009. Uh, November 13th through the 15th will be an awesome convention at the uh, Wyndham Hotel and Resort in North Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, our very own uh, Princess of Alderaan moderator and all-around cool chick, Zarissa, is uh, heavily involved with this con, and she and her family will also be there, which is very, very fantastic. And if you are going to be there as well, I would like to mention that the, uh, the local 501st, which are, of course, the uh, Stormtrooper reenactors, um, are going to be there at the convention, and they're going to be having a raffle for the Make-A-Wish Foundation where they're going to be auctioning off some very cool Star Wars swag, some right. replica pieces, as well as a copy of the recently released Galaxy at War book signed by none other than a newly christened developer and D20 Radio alum, John Stevens, a.k.a. Donovan Morningfire. But, um, dude, I've been reading all about the con. I really wish I was able to go, but I can't. Yeah. It's three days of just pure gaming and geekiness, and, and it's just running the gamut of, of all gaming genres, video games, card games, comics, anime, everything. I and know. it's supposed to be a really family-friendly, family fun event, um, you know, I for hear, gamers, by gamers. I and hear you can find out. Hmm? No, go ahead. I, I heard that there was a whole book of uh, Stormtrooper poetry that was going to be out there as well. Is that a fact? I heard, but, you know. Well, if you guys would like to find out what is going to be out there, you can find out more at www.littlerockgamecon.com. This is the Holodet News Update. I'm Luke Lowbrow. This morning, at the Coruscant Community College, 27 Wookiees were arrested for conducting a streaking run across campus. In related news, the Coruscant Community College has canceled their Wookiee track and field program because every member of the team was involved in the streaking incident and is now incarcerated. In entertainment news, the star-studded tribute concert commemorating the life of the Bith superstar Figrin Dan of the Modal Nodes has ended in violence. Allegedly, an altercation began as a verbal dispute involving Cy Snoodles, Figrin's former lover and jazz legend, when she accused Figrin's Bith bandmate Liren Karn of withholding royalties owed her as one of Figrin's primary music collaborators. Video taken at the concert depicts Cy Snoodles striking Liren Karn in the head with his own clue horn while repeatedly shrieking, I will slap a Bith! I will slap a Bith! In business news, the Wampa Disney Company is planning a Wampa-themed amusement park on the planet Hoth. Patrons of the park will experience the thrill of being chased across an ice field by a man eating Wampa. They will also explore the mysteries and secrets of Wampa life. 
tourists will learn about the scientifically impossible tasks wampas perform every day, such as their ability to melt ice in their cave ceilings and refreeze it fast enough to hold the weight of an adult human male to leave him dangling there indefinitely, all done without the aid of any advanced technology. The hotel located on the property will simulate what it is like to be stuffed inside of a tauntaun and sleep there overnight. Tonight's Holonet News Update has been brought to you by Dagobah Soup. The soup that you only eat because you're being polite. Dagobah Soup. The soup that makes the granola bar in your rations look like a ribeye steak. That's Dagobah Soup. If you didn't already know where the bathroom is in your friend's hovel, you're gonna need to find it fast. This has been your Holonet News Update. I'm Luke Lowbrow. Good night, and good streaking. Shout out and props to Darth Pseudonym for use of a good joke. Yep. There Fantastic. Is. There Thank you, Dan. <laughs> How awesome is that? And you know what else is awesome, by the way, Chris? What 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 else is awesome? The awesomeness that is about to come up as we introduce our two mystery guests. No, they're not very mysterious. Good no, they're not. People they're gonna be not here, but, at know. all. So the first you know only as <clears throat> Rodney Thompson. Hello. That's, that's the only way we know him. I mean, you can you know him as lots of other things, but everybody here knows him as Rodney Thompson. D twenty Radio's own Rodney Thompson. D twenty Radio's own Rodney Thompson. Jedi Knight and friend to Captain Soldo. That's right, man. So what's going on in Carbonite over there? Am I supposed to respond? I mean, am I supposed to pretend that I'm frozen in carbonite? Rawr. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> is that how this is going to work? I don't know. We're doing a little role-playing here on the cast? Hey, see, we could do that. <laughs> hey, now. We could so, hey, now. We could so do that, man. We That's a concept. So I could yeah. do it. People will probably like it, like it, too. We've had a request for, you know, that. But, yes, welcome what, to the cast, sir. You guys sir? are going to dress up as a bounty hunter and sneak in and free me? and uh, Personally, I'd prefer, to, I'd prefer to dress up as Slave Leia, but that's just, you know, Slave my, my, my proclivities. If we could yeah. get somebody who could look like Slave Leia, and then we could get somebody who could look like that bounty hunter in the SWTOR trailer. Mm, yummy. Mm. <laughs> it's just creepy. It's creepy that I find a cartoon character somewhat attractive, weird. I don't know. Anyway, before I even go down that path, Jonathan Stevens, a.k.a. Donovan Morningfire. Welcome to the show, sir. Greetings, programs. Hey. That's right. not your line. It's Flynn. <laughs> it's it's Kevin Flynn's line. Yes, I'm aware. However, you know, <laughs> it's all good, dude. What's going on? Uh, same, also, same as it ever was. Same there as it ever was, yeah. So well, thank you very much, guys, for taking time out of your day to talk about the book. The Galaxy and Award, which just all. released last week. Yes, in all its glory. And by the way, big shout out to the guy who was going to be with us tonight, but uh, had a sick family kick him in the butt at the last minute. Uh, my friend and uh, developer, Gary Asselford. I hope you're doing well, Gary, and I hope your family gets better. So, Big shout out. So, And with right. that... With... Isn't it funny that we just have nothing in terms of anything else? We just go straight to the meat. <laughs> Preparatory, I say. Yes. For the awesomeness that is going to come. You know, we don't want to make a four-hour podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> Basically. No. no. So, no. here we go, boys. Let's do it. Well, Ready. first of all, gentlemen, th thank you so much for taking the time to come and, and join us. It's greatly appreciated. But we are here to talk about the recently released Galaxy at War. 
um, otherwise known as the uh, yet-to-be-trademark uh, Big Book of Soldiers and stuff, um, <laughs> which is which is there. Um, before we begin, I um, obviously uh, and and Rodney jump in too, but uh, John, this was this is your first development effort with uh, Wizards of the Coast, yes? Yes. Fantastic. Um, and. In terms of, of I, I know uh, one of the things Gary mentioned to me as he was as, as he was actually saying, you know, hey, I'm so sorry I can't make it, is he was interested to have us talk about some of the, the fluffier aspects of running military campaigns. Um, now, I normally end our discussions with this question, but I'd actually like to, to kind of warm things up by asking this question to begin with from both of you. All right. Of all the things that we're going to talk about and questions we're going to answer and things we're going to delve into, was there a part of Galaxy at War that you were most pleased to see get in Galaxy at War, that you were the happiest to either contribute or the happiest to see on those pages? I'll let Rodney? John go first. No, oh, please, okay. please. Um, actually, kind of kind of two bits I was pleased. First was the martial arts stuff, which is part of what I worked on. I was very happy to see that come in, get in. Um... The other part was the the big full the big full length adventure at the end. It's oh yeah, and I know that's something that a lot of people ask for is like more adventure stuff, and it's very cool to see that in there. So, yeah, I, I, excellent, 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 excellent. Well, I know we're going to be talking about both those things later on, but Rodster, what do you say, man? What what were you excited to see come to this? Uh, I think probably the part that I'm most excited about is probably a part that is going to get the least fanfare. Um, that's the bases and battle stations chapter. I know I oh. talked about it a little bit last time I was on the cast, but uh, basically, I, I feel like this is the first step towards um, really providing the DM w- with some tools that he or she can use to create adventures quickly, easily, and that are a- an appropriate challenge. I think one area that we neglected um, just probably by accident, really in the uh, early run of the uh, Saga Edition books, and really even in the core book, is uh, focusing on how to create you know appropriate and exciting uh, encounters and challenges, right? And I think this this one goes a long way towards sort of teaching people how to build a Star Wars adventure in in, in a certain certain style. Gotcha. Well, I I am in agreement with you. Actually, that that little section that, that those you know twenty pages or so were. Pro- probably up there part of one of my favorite pieces too and more than one person has commented on the basis of battle station section talking about it but we are going to come to that um well level setting like then um would you have something you're going to say hello nope nope okay i thought i heard somebody trying to enter in so just tell me to shut up interrupt me i'm fine <laughs> good luck with that oh oh first podcast and he's smacking me around what's up with that God, see what we hang at Gen Con, and all of a sudden we're cool like that. Seriously, John. Seriously. Hey, well, you know we we tried to bash each other with a you know bopper weapon, so it's got to count for something. This is very true. Bopper combat did occur. Did occur. <laughs> all right. Well, let's continue. If you guys like the the format, I kind of like to talk about. We we were kind enough to um, where we the gamer nation was kind enough to provide us with a, a fair amount of questions to to kind of delve into um, a lot of things they were curious about, but. In going through this book, I thought we could um, start by, by talking about some of the, the deeper concepts behind some of the various sections and then kind of hit appropriate questions as they come. Does that sound good? Yeah. Yeah. Rodney? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm up for whatever you want to do, man. Awesome sauce. Well, let's hit immediately first talking about um, uh, the military heroes area, particularly some of the new species. Um, 
I, I was I was happy to see a lot of the species that were in there, especially Barabels. Uh, that was one of my first characters in uh, Wag Star Wars was a Barabel shockboxer. Um, so I, I was I was tickled to see that. But it seems to me like in general the the species that were included here were were obviously very very soldier esque. Um, were there were there any? For, first of all, who who worked on most of the species, and were there any species that you were you were like you know man man I've I, I got to include this species in this book you know that you you've been waiting to include in the book. Um, um, that, no, sorry. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Um, most species were my fault. So if you have a grievance with them, you can blame me. <laughs> so, do you have a favorite among them? Um, kind of a kind of a toss up. It's I mean, kind of like the tong. It's which you know, it's kind of a side note. It's when I was initially writing, I'm thinking this was at the point where people were oh, the tong should be awesome. The tong should be awesome. And I'm thinking. Okay, well, how can I do that without making them broke-tastic? Yeah. So, I, th- I think they turned out pretty well. Uh, yeah, I like the tongue. I think I think it's it's awesome having that that nod to the to the, to the original Sith, and they're very important, I guess, for a Galaxy War campaign. <laughs> Rodney, did you have a favorite species in here, or something that you were really excited to see in? Uh, well, so the interesting thing was when I was when I was picking the species that we were going to put in this book, I really I felt like. Uh, I had to pick species that had sort of some kind of war theme to them, whether that was that they were a warlike race or that they their species was particularly impacted by war. And I kept coming up with other races that we'd already done. Right? I was like, oh, we should put these guys in there. Oh, wait, no, we've already done that. So um, this book also kind of gave us a chance to look into some some slightly different corners of the Star Wars universe than we usually do. Uh, I know that a lot of people were surprised by the species selection here, and uh, while some of them are pretty, you know, easy, like the Barabel and the Deshade uh, and stuff like that, I know a lot of people were surprised by uh, that that some of these races have made it in before other races that are coming later uh, made it into the book. So, um, I think my favorite uh, is probably either the um, the Tong or the, I like the Zygarians a lot. Um, I, I they came out of the uh, Clone Wars comic book that's out um, right now, yeah. and I, I just really like kind of another pseudo humanoid race that I could um, that I could really build from scratch because frankly there wasn't a whole lot on them, so uh, a lot of that was is just brand new material. Very nice, excellent. Yeah. Well, you guys may have kind of gone into this, but one of the questions we had sent in was from Knight Errant Jr., who wanted to know what what exactly pushes you towards deciding on a given race to be included in the book. Is there a set of criteria you go through, or what is that process normally? Well, for me, it's mostly a matter of what's appropriate for the theme of the book, and then what I also what I think will make a good player race. Right? Like, I I tend to hesitate when I look at things like large races or, or races that have I should say species, actually. Species that have um, some kind of physical trait that makes them hard to play. Uh, so I, I tend to look you know, through those two lenses first. And then I start thinking about um, sort of pushing the boundaries of what we think of as an acceptable uh, player character species. I'll give you a good example. The Yavetha in this book. I know that's a really seemed like a really strange choice to people given that they only appeared in uh, 
the Black Fleet Crisis trilogy of, of books and mm-hmm. haven't been heard from or seen before or since. And it was sort of that was my reasoning behind why I might want to include them in here. Because these guys were, you know, sort of the villains in the New Republic era, we didn't really know what they were doing, you know, in the Clone Wars era and the Nice Republic era, etc. And I thought that this was a really great chance for players and game masters to create their own story for these guys. I mean, they haven't really been touched in the EU, but we give you enough to go on here and then if you're playing in a Knights of the Republic game and you pick this up and you say, oh, the Yavetha, okay, these guys are kind of warlike, it gives you a chance to take one, play one as a PC, and sort of define what the story is for that era. Now, you know, a year and a half from now, there may be a novel come out that's, hey, here's what the Yavetha are doing during the Knights of the Old Republic series, but uh, no. for now, <laughs> right, it's, it's, a, it's a way that we can give you a species that fits the theme, probably interesting to play, and also, you know, gives you a... Uh, a place to play in the Star Wars universe that no one else really has. Cool. Well, and maybe if, if uh, J- John, if you were responsible for a lot of the, the mechanics behind some of these in terms of writing them up, Night Errant's second question was, from a more mechanical point of view, what is it about a race's ability or species ability that makes you decide to give it a re-roll, keep the second result, instead of a re-roll, keep the better roll type of ability? Um, that's kind of a judgment of, okay, how good is a given species at this particular skill is it something they're kind of you know they're better than average or are they really great at it and that's and also kind of okay what else can what else can this race do if there's not really you know if they're had it's pretty much okay this one skill like okay they're really good trackers and that's about it then okay yeah you can you know roll survival for tracking and keep the better of the two but if they've got a bunch of other stuff, kind of like the Rodians do, it's like, okay, then that would be a re-roll, keep the second. Gotcha. So if it's like a primary focus, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, in terms of species, uh, we had a couple other questions, one of which was, was very crunchy, um, and more than one person has, has asked. And the other is a little more uh, a little more fluffy in its thing, but both both of them come from Babs, um, who's I know as a regular poster over on the Watsi boards as well. Um, Babs had a question about the usum. Uh, which are on, on page 17 of uh, Galaxy at War, and in particular, the martial arts feats. Uh, so, Yuzum are, are one, uh, a species that deals a D8 with their base damage, um, which is something we haven't really seen before this book. Normally, the, you know, the unnatural attacks deal that one D6. So, obviously, with martial arts 1, they're going to deal a D10. With martial arts 2, they're going to deal a D12. What damage are they going to roll if they have martial arts 3? I think the obvious answer is that it caps at D12, but that's not really the true answer. Um, the martial arts feats, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they say the die type increases by one step, which right. means yep. that once you hit D12, uh, that pretty much tops out because we don't give you D20s. But uh, in the history of D20 gaming, the typical next step, I believe, would be 2D6, uh, gotcha. which yeah, is... The same maximum damage potential, but it bumps up your minimum damage and thus your um, average damage as well. So not uh, a bad house roll? Yeah. It's, I remember seeing this back on the Watsi boards back, back around the time when the book came out. And my initial thought was, okay, um, throw them a plus one or plus two bonus to their damage roll. Because I've seen some other people saying, okay, what about stuff that... You know, adds a dice to the damage roll, like, you know, Rapid Strike and Terrace Kasi Basics. You gotcha. know, bumping up to 2d6 kind of makes the math there, I guess. I guess wonky is kind of the best word I can think of for it, so. Well, I think martial arts is 
keep in mind, I mean, one thing's I always I li- the one things I like about martial arts is the fact that it's not just the boost to your unarmed damage, it also boosts your reflex defense, and I think that's just as important uh, an ability. Um, so, so basically, the 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 obvious answer or the the the, the standard answer is it caps at a d12, but obviously there's a couple a couple rule options a GM can do if they happen to have a character that gets to that point. That's kind of a Twinkie build, but still. Yeah, obvious probably wasn't the right word for me to use. Maybe I should have said that the uh, strictest uh, interpretation would be uh, that it caps at D12. Um, you, you can sort of look at it like this, that if you cap it at D12, that means that, hey, they reach the same potential as anybody else. They just get there one feet earlier, which I think is reasonable. Um, <laughs> if that's not a satisfactory answer, you can go to 2D6 just fine. But uh, yeah, basically you you end up getting to the maximum damage point a feet earlier than everyone else. Makes sense. Cool. Okay. Well, in terms of the other uh, species question we had, and uh, this is also asked by Raving Dork, who echoed Babs on it, uh, the Thokwash, everyone's favorite split personality species, uh, <laughs> on page 14, <laughs> um, or as I like to call them, space camels. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, so the, qu- the question is this. He says, he says, okay, these things are supposed to be about three meters tall, very large. And it's been clarified on the boards that they were originally designed as large size, but overruled by medium to medium size by LucasArts. Perhaps so that RPG players could actually identify their character with Runt, who's, you know, obviously the, the, the famous Thokwash, the one that we know, um, who was very short, you know, only two meters, and he was obviously in Rogue Squadron, and probably one of the only EU Thokwashes that we know of. If, if we wanted to play a large Thokwash, how would you envision the stats of a large-sized Thokwash? How would they differ from a medium-sized Thokwash? I would say the easy answer would be, okay, use the creature information in the back of the core book thing. Okay, bump them to large. Uh, they get a, they would get a further boost to strength, but also take a, another hit on dexterity, as well as the size penalty for being large. I mean, that's quick and dirty method. Uh, the way I would probably recommend is just to replace the medium size with large size, uh, because the medium size, the large size also comes with penalties to uh, stealth built in and penalty to reflex defense built in. Um, so that's sort of self-balancing. Um, I, I'm looking at the Thekwash right now. I don't really see anything that would uh, warrant adjusting. You might, yeah, yeah. I, I think if you just add the, if you just use the standard large size creature modifiers, that probably does the job instead of tinkering with their ability score modifiers and such. Cool, cool, easy. Yeah. Um. So, because I, I have to ask, I, I think the thought quash are fun, and um, I, I, I was always a fan of Runt. Um, what was the decision for including the Thawquash in the book? They are they are a bit of a, a bit of a one-off species. What was the? I guess my question is, what was the envisioned role that you were hoping a, a PC might take with the with the species, or was it just going to be one of those fun options to have? Uh, it's sort of one of those fun options to have. Plus, we knew we were going to be tackling Wraith Squadron a little bit uh, mm. later in the book, which was certainly a you know an advantage there. And plus, they. Um, uh, they seem to be a, a pretty decent species to fit that whole, um, you know, military warlike uh, kind of motif. Especially since we see their their primary, you know, iconic example in the Star Wars universe in the middle of a time of war and in the middle of a squadron of, you know, starfighter pilots. Cool, cool. Uh, I like it, and I I, plan, I hope I hope to make a space camel very soon. Um, yeah, just the multiple personalities angle would be. I was, you got, if, oh, how how fun is that for role playing? Seriously, 
<laughs> Real role players, eat your heart out. Eat your heart out. Oh, fantastic. All right. Well, moving on. Um, we had uh, moving into kind of the the, the sort of well, staying staying in the whole in the military hero section. There were several great new talents that came out in this book, and several talent trees, and we're adding to the to the, the plethora of what's out there, and and even more options. There was a lot of stuff I was I was excited to see, but there was a general question that Knight Errant Jr. came to us with, and um, it's actually something I've kind of put on the docket to talk to uh, you guys about next time I had the opportunity because it relates to other things as well, other talents and other books, and he's curious to know. Do talents that, for, for example, several of the new noble talents that activate with a successful ranged attack, do they only activate with a single ranged attack that hits an opponent, like you know, going Leia or Padme on somebody with a blaster, or do they work even if you auto-fire and miss, but still thus damage your opponent, going like all Princess Vespa on an, on an opponent, basically? Well, the trick is with... Um with ranged and area attacks, that there actually is a distinction between a ranged attack and an area attack. And this is something I think we'll probably talk about later in the show as well. But um, we have had some less than clear editing on whether or not an area attack is a ranged area attack or a melee area attack. Uh, Basically, when it says a ranged attack, it means, by default, unless it says specifically otherwise, it means a non-area ranged attack. Okay, and that that, that is... Ball's out. Going to clarify a question we have later when we get to the feed section, but right. that that's easy to note. Mm-hmm. But if if so, if I use so basically in terms of these talents, when it's saying a range, when it's saying an attack uh, to hit with an attack, it, it's excluding a ranged attack from. Or excuse me, it's excluding an area attack from that. Is what you're saying? Yeah, unless it specifies otherwise. Gotcha, gotcha. Easy enough. Well, that's going to change one of my favorite things, which is giving uh, uh, a noble a uh, a sub repeating blaster and. Uh, um, lead by example. Darn it! <laughs> One of those. Yes, I'm going to do this no matter what. Uh, excellent. Okay. Well, hey, that's a, that's a, that's a good answer, and it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, now, Rob Shanty and Raul Torin had similar questions in regards to the talents, and this is kind of moving into the the martial arts areas. Just kind of skipping ahead for just a brief bit. Um, as, as we get there, there I have a question about the, the tough as Durasteel ability on, on page 33. Um, now, it is listed as a talent in the unarmed mastery talent tree, but there, the chart on page 32 listed as a prestige class feature that martial arts masters just get at second level. Is this one of those rare situations where the text actually doesn't trump the chart, or is it is it actually part of the talent tree? And also, they want to know... Uh, Raul Torn wanted to know, can you clarify the wording? At the end of the ability, it says you gain a number of bonus hit points equal to your class level, and then says that the number of bonus hit points increases every other level, presumably by two. So those both can't be true. So can you clarify that somewhat for us? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, This Um, is just a formatting issue. Pretty much. Yeah, there was actually another talent I'd written for the tree. I don't know if I got was just dropped outright or just left out by by mistake, but yeah, talented yeah, toughest Durasteel got mixed in there by mistake. So it is an actual yeah. cla- it is an actual class ability. Yeah, yeah. It, it, what it looks like happened was that toughest Durasteel was originally formatted as uh, a class ability and just actually accidentally got formatted as a talent instead. Gotcha. Uh, so yes, it should still be a class ability, and uh, it basically you gain the increase at every other level, but it's equal to your class level, so it's effectively giving you a plus two, but every other level. 
Makes sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. Easy peasy. Um, easy peasy. Now, going back a little bit to talents, um, particular page 31, uh, the new sharpshooter talent tree um, for Gunslinger, which is fantastic, by the way. You're uh, welcome. <laughs> uh, there was a question that Raul had about uh, the bullseye talent on page 31. He said, uh, it's a bit confusing when you get the bonus. Uh, is the target for the bullseye talent denied his dex bonus for all attacks after this talent's been activated, even if you don't aim or he moves into point-blank range, or is he only denied his dex once? Um, my intent when I was writing it was he was only denied his dex for that one attack. Gotcha. So, which, and considering all the other fun stuff you could do aiming-wise that... Yeah, I mean, you, you've discussed the, the bounty hunter gunslinger trick of, okay, hey, got these oh, yes. two talents, I aim, and down the condition track you go if you're flat-footed. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the intent here is clearly that this effectively modifies yeah. the aim action. Uh, and since the aim action's effects only last for a single attack, there you go. Boom. Easy peasy. Headshot. Head, headshot. <laughs> Excellent. Well, in terms of, uh, of, of the rest of the talents, and again, I know this is very fluffy, but um, in terms of the actual class talents, not so much the prestige class talents, I was very pleased to see two things. Um, first and foremost, the shockboxer talent tree, because it has a place in my heart. I can actually make my barrel shockboxer yet again. He was such a fun character. Just a um, quick sidetrack. I just yeah. want to note that on the barrel, uh, Ronnie, I'm not sure who did the art on that, but th those are some of the most interesting pictures of barrels I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Um... What can I say? Sometimes we have art of varying quality. <laughs> it, it comes and goes. They're, they're Although, they're certainly happy looking. They're very happy looking barabels. Of course, I'd be happy too if I was about to eat someone. That's where it, yeah. That's where it kind of comes through. <laughs> but I was very pleased to see the shockboxer talent tree. That made me happy. And I was also pleased to see a lot more of... Uh, Roddy, I think you referred to these as the... Well, when the, when they came out initially, they, you called them like third-tier talents, basically. But the idea that you have these talents right. that give you, you know, three three abilities you can do per encounter. And um, I'm, I'm very pleased to see these because I think, I think it's a wonderful incentive to stay in a base class for just a little while longer, you know, and, and, and not, not go through the rigmarole of multi-classing, um, which is a good way to usually tweak your characters. Are we going to be seeing more of these? Or, I mean, you know, are, are, you, are you a fan? Is, is, this, is there a reasoning behind deciding to include these in the books? Uh, yeah, one of the reasons why we have them, and I think I've said this uh, in a previous cast, is because they sort of give us an answer for non-Jedi to uh, use you know, more limited abilities, whereas the Jedi get force powers, right? So these are the mm -hmm. sort of non-Jedi answer to a force power. And I I would like to continue doing them, and I, I foresee more coming up in the future, perhaps in another book um, in this same series. So I would I would be, not be surprised if you see them again. That's a big galaxy. <laughs> hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Say no more. No, no, no more is said. Know what I mean? Know what I mean? I, I. Excellent. Also, I got to give you big props on one particular thing that no one even mentioned, but I've got to mention it, and I got to go. I got to know who came up with it. On page twenty-three, there is an awesome sidebar for doing shock boxing in what almost amounts to a, a type of skill challenge rolled into combat. And I thought it was a wonderful little new mechanic to add that is very flavorful, and you know probably won't affect your games too much, but it's just a great option to have. Whose brainchild was that? Uh, I think I wrote that, but I'm not positive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that was here because I think from let's see, I think from looking, yeah, that's that would be your baby. Yeah, um, 
I don't know. The, well done. The idea of mechanics that are one-on-one is always a sticky proposition at best. Mm-hmm. So this was sort of my attempt to come up with something that wouldn't eat up a ton of time at the table, um, but would still feel just a little bit different than um, your standard, I make an attack roll. You miss. I make an attack roll. You hit. <laughs> Etc. I, I I like it a lot, and not just for shockboxing. This is something I could see transferring into like a duel. You know. Oh if hell yeah! If you're having that one-on-one or a gladiatorial combat match, something to that effect. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think that this is one of those cases where for like lightsaber duels, I I think the the more exciting thing is just to use the regular combat rules, but use the lightsaber form uh, powers out of yeah. uh, Jedi Academy. Yeah. Uh, this is more designed for people that don't have access to those kind of force powers. Awesome. Awesome. Well, continuing along as we as we go through there, also on page 2322, we kind of get into the feats section. And we had, a, we had a couple questions about some of the feats in the book. Um, obviously, most of these are very combat-oriented, but uh, Droid Dreamer and, and Raving Dork as well asked um, a clarification, which I, I really just want to touch on because you've already given us the answer, that there are two feats which allow you to move opponents with ranged attacks, uh, Bantha Herder feat and uh, Forceful Blast. You know, Bantha Herding applied to ranged attacks and Forceful Blast applying to grenade attacks. Just to clarify, per your earlier statement, we're saying that the, the ranged attack does not include a grenade attack unless it says otherwise, thus we have these two feats? Pretty much. They're intended to be mutually exclusive. Gotcha. Well, that's easy. All right, now, Raving Dork, obviously, um, you guys are familiar with RD from the Watsi boards, a rather large poster over there. Um, he was kind enough to compile a great deal of questions for us, and so a lot of these came from him, but they may not necessarily have come from him, if you understand what I'm saying. Gotcha. Um, so he, he obviously had a lot to ask, um, on behalf of many others as well. And he had two, uh, two questions about, about a couple feats. Um, one, the dive for cover feat. Uh, page 23. He wants to know, how exactly does this feat work? Would the character using it effectively become immune to a ranged attack by diving behind full cover when attacked? So, obviously, the feat lets you dive behind cover, you know, as a reaction once per round. Um, you know, can you dive behind full cover? And if so, does that, doesn't that make you immune to the attack? Uh, sort of. Um, I think that... So, yes. The, the answer to that question is Yes. Um, the the practical answer, however, I think is that while it's true that you may dive behind cover and might end up with a uh, uh, to, might end up with total cover, the fact of the matter is that you know if you're just shooting at one person, yeah, you, you get to be immune to their attacks, but it's not anything better than you could have done with running attack anyways, because um, otherwise you just pop out, shoot, and pop back in, and then you're yeah. behind cover anyways, right? So yeah, there's a it's yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, there's a scoundrel in the game I play in it. She makes dynamite use of running attack with a couple other stuff. It's, mm-hmm. And again, it's, she, it's for her, it's dynamite. TG is, TG is a fan of running attack as well. <laughs> Pop yeah, out. This, do, okay. do your deal and pop back in. Yeah, this is really meant to be something that you can use um, in situations where like you don't have enough movement to get behind cover or... Uh, where you move out and then the situation changes and then all of a sudden you're like, okay, crap, I, I wasn't planning on this, let's me jump away. And it is also once per turn, right? So, yeah. you know, practically speaking, you're going to have multiple people uh, moving around to attack you. So, yeah, you might dive out of the way of, of one of those bad guys' attacks, right? But chances are he's then going to send one of his buddies around you or, you know, the situation will change next round. I, I don't think there's ever going to be 
a practical situation that is so static in your position and their position that you can fire at them, but they can never, you know, hit you, right? There's things will eventually change. Makes sense. I, I kind of just, just like if you use running attack. Yeah. It makes sense. I'd kind of put this almost in the same category as like vehicular combat or block and deflect, where you you know you can, you know, you still have that that ability to kind of just negate it briefly. You know what I mean? Block and deflect, obviously, being a more powerful example. But um, no, that, that that makes good sense. I think this is a great feat, and obviously, you have to have cover available for it to work. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's also a good reason to train and jump. <laughs> ah, sneaky, sneaky. Yeah. Well, RD's other question regarding feats, um, in particular. The Unified Squadron feat, um, which is on page 30. Now, I know last time we had you on, Rodney, we kind of previewed uh, uh, some of the stuff in- initially, and you were kind enough to give us some, some uh, preliminary information on some of the team feats that were going to be in there, because I know one of the uh, PCs in, um, in Murder on the Executor had one. Um, I think uh, no, I'm, I'm excuse me, I'm I'm not one of the team feats. They had a different feat, but you were you still previewed the team feats for us. Um, and this was one of the team feats in question, uh, Unified Squadron, uh, which particular it works for piloting. And RD wants to know, does the Unified Squadron team feat work at starship scale? Or is the whole allies within 12 squares bit only meant to benefit allies on the same ship? Uh, no, a square is a square in this case. So at starship scale, if you're within 12 starship scale squares, then yeah, you gain the benefits. Uh, if you're playing at character scale and you're all in speeder bikes, then yeah, it's a little bit tougher, but that's just a function of the fact that uh, in space and in Starship scale, you have a lot more room to maneuver, and it's a lot easier to work together as a squadron, whereas um, at character scale, typically you're going to be encountering situations that make it more difficult to, to work in concert with someone else, um, especially if you know, you're, you're talking about um, two people on speeder bikes or something like that. Makes good sense. It would explain why Rogue Squadron is as awesome as it is. Ah, they've all got this feat. <laughs> I think it also encourages pilots to stay close. Um, you know, in other words, staying in attack formations as opposed to just spreading out all across the uh, star map, um, which is nice. Yeah, excellent. Well, with that, we're going to take a brief break for something very, very important. <laughs> Dark thoughts with Twi'lek goodness. So everyone keeps talking about this Gaw book. I don't get it. Gaw what? Gaw, it's a great book. Gaw, it's Star Wars. Since the book is all about soldiers and stuff, shouldn't it be called, like, the Book of Soldiers and stuff? This has been Dark Thoughts with Twi'lek goodness. Ah... Thank you, TG, for being here in spirit and sharing with us your infinite wisdom. <laughs> Very nice. Oh, man. By the way, John, TG says hello. Hello. She hopes your forehead's better after, after uh, buffer combat. <laughs> or was it my forehead? I can't remember. Um, I think we both took a couple of blows. Boom. No pun intended. Excellent. <laughs> All right, well, let's get back to this book of soldiers and stuff, if we may. Um, okay, okay, let's let's return to to martial arts for a, for a sec, um, because uh, listen, some, there were some been some really good questions about martial arts and the martial arts prestige class. There's a new set of martial arts feats in this book, 
So, okay, the martial arts just finally gets its own class, and I can I can honestly say that that I think this is one thing the community has just been yammering about for some time to please, please, please make on behalf of all of us, gentlemen. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you. I have talked to no less than half a dozen people in, in my own game circle, two of them yesterday at Reaper when I was having a game day up there, that were like individually said to me, man, next campaign, I'm still making a martial artist, man. Uh, I, uh, this is what I'm making. Um, so how does it feel to bring this to life? And was this something you knew was going to come in Galaxy at War for a while and you were just waiting for the right moment to spring it? Or was this a, a fairly recent rescission? What was the impetus behind giving, obviously, what is in admittedly a large amount of the uh, new rules to martial arts? Uh, well, for me, uh, martial arts have always kind of had a, a special place in my heart. Um, if you remember all the way back to the revised rules, the Heroes Guide had martial arts rules in it. And I ended up, I was actually the one that wrote those. Um, and so... Uh, I've always kind of wanted to put them back into the game, but it's never really been a, a great time to put them in until the book about war and soldiers and you know people yeah. that are likely to use martial arts. So it just it just seemed like a natural fit. Awesome, awesome. What was it like bringing them to life? Have you guys gotten any good compliments from people yet? Or I mean, I, I mean, obviously, I don't know how much you guys. I mean, John, I know you do, but Roddy, I don't know how much time you have to troll boards. People are just going nuts over it, and they seem to really enjoy it. Is yeah, this? I, I, yeah. Yeah, I think my favorite was, uh, I don't remember who it was, it uh, said, but uh, the Wookiee feet, the Rushi training, it's okay, armor-breaking Wookiee death machine. <laughs> but, it, there you go. Well, it's fitting, and, and I like it. Um, we do have a couple questions, um, both of them on behalf of Raving Dork, um, regarding martial arts. Um, the, the first one is actually one of the martial arts feats specifically um, on page 26, uh, the Taijutsu training martial art feat. Um, he wants to know, are the two dodge targets listed in addition to that granted by the dodge feat, effectively granting you a plus one dodge bonus against three targets, or are we just talking about an, an extra dodge target now? That would turn just be an extra dodge target. So you'd have the one from your dodge feat, and then you'd have the second one from the taijutsu training. Got it. Easy. And um, the other question he had, and one I've heard a couple people say, um, I know Dave, Dave mentioned it initially when... Um, when we were first looking through this book together. Um, a design question. Um, in regards to the, the martial artist prestige class, why the, the exclusion of, of a martial arts training feats as prerequisites for the martial arts expertise talents of the martial arts prestige class? I mean, because as it's written now, like I, I, without, without you know, Rushi training, I can be a, get, get the Rushi mastery feat. Was that, was that intended? And if so, why? Uh, well, I, I guess when you look at it, right? Like I, I wanted you to be able to get into the class and um, basically be able to take advantage of multiple talents without having to have burned multiple feats on gotcha. on that, right? And uh, you still want to have them both in concert because, as as you know, the feats have writers on them that say, "Hey, and if you have this talent, then you get this extra little bit," right? Gotcha, so it's gotcha. um. It was incentive to match those up by you know making the benefit seem good rather than saying you have to have this right. Otherwise, what would end up happening is you'd go into martial arts master maybe with as few as you know one uh, martial arts training feat right, and then you take the talent for that, and then you're stuck uh, with the unarmed mastery talent tree as well. Yeah, the expertise talents, um, and and John can chime in here uh, as well. But the expertise talents are really intended to be more something you take that. 
affects your overall um, combat ability, whereas the feats uh, are more about the actual style, if that makes sense. No, that makes uh, sense. That does. It's, I was going to also say it's kind of, kind of view the martial arts talents as like, sort of along the lines of the lightsaber forms, where it's, okay, this is the name applied to it, but as Rodney said, this is enough, these talents are effects that would go to your just general fighting style. Instead of saying, okay, you get you know an improved knockdown ability, uh, you have a form expertise that gives you that knockdown ability. Right. Well, I, I think of it kind of like a, a mixed martial artist. If there's any, yeah. anyone listening that's a fan of mixed martial artists, you know, a, a good mixed martial artist, a good MMA fighter probably has training in jiu-jitsu, kempo, karate, kung fu, um, as well as just basic boxing. And I doubt when you're watching him fight, you go, oh, 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 that's totally a jiu-jitsu move right there. No, it, it's, it's like it all combines into your overall style. Is that, I mean, at least that's how I would interpret it. Is that kind of where, where you're, what you're thinking? Yeah, it's, I mean, you can also apply that to uh, a lot of, quite a few of the you know, martial arts act, actors, uh, Jet Li, mm. uh, Jackie Chan, you know, Sammy Hong, those guys who, they don't just use one particular style. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do mm-hmm. is, okay, you take what works for you, you refine it, and that's what you use. You don't use just the stock methods. Taking the talents, kind of as Roddy said, reflects that, saying, okay, here's how I choose to fight, as opposed to how my friend here on the left chooses to fight or how my friend here on the right chooses to fight. Makes sense. No, no, I, I like it. Furthermore, and Rodney, you mentioned this, if it was done the other way, it would be kind of a sparse talent tree because you'd pretty much have to load up on, uh, I mean, you have to burn all your feats on those initials in order to take these talents. And eh, this seems like a little, more, a little bit more open character option to me, at least. Yeah, so. there is such a thing as, as you know, feat and talent pressure, right? Oh, mm. Yes. Oh, yes. What I, what I love about this is the fact that that okay, this traditionally with martial artist builds, when I've done them in the past using the elite trooper method, there's a lot of feet and talent pressure because it's one of those things, you know, if you man, I gotta I gotta get into elite trooper, I gotta have this, I gotta have this, I gotta have this, I gotta have this. Yeah. Now it's a lot easier. That pressure is like released. And um that's something I think Brev was mentioning to me the other day because um in the game T G is actually creating right now her very first campaign. I'm so proud proud of her. Um uh he's gonna play a martial artist and he's you know, and he 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 did he'd made that decision before this book came out, and when he saw it, it was like, yeah, he cried. <laughs> oh, I, I would figure at least it's a big old grin on his face, huge grin, fantastic, excellent stuff. All right, well, guys, um, moving on a bit, let's get to one of the the chapters that has caused probably some of the some of the larger questions regarding this book, as it always does, um, and. I know I waxed awesome about this last week when we finally got to bring back Watto with some of the cooler toys that are found in the hardware chapter. And there was a lot of new stuff in this chapter, a lot of new mechanics and new systems for this game that I thought were great. And um, let's kind of let's take them as we come. But hit off the bat with some of the, um, some of the more uh, uh, crunchier questions regarding some of the specific items. There were a lot of really cool weapons in this book, um, and Vader Sun, Raving Dork, several others had a question particularly about the Flame Cannon, page 39. Uh, basically, the Flamethrower's big brother. And they want to know, what's up with the weight? Is this typo? Only half a kilo? The Flamethrower's big brother weighs less than the Flamethrower? What gives? Uh, well, <laughs> let's see. Well, you see, 
and then you hear the sound of me running away. <laughs> uh, well, you see, he was just here a minute ago. I have to think that's a typo, and probably the actual the actual weight should be fifteen kilograms. Okay. Um. Yeah, that's the only thing that really makes sense. So I would say it's just a typo. It makes sense. Mm. It makes sense. So it's one of the things I he- I hesitate to ask questions that are that are like you know oh yeah that's probably a typo. But there's a couple that were like okay is it a typo? But more importantly, asking the questions that we really want to get your guys' opinion. Okay, well we we know it's a typo. What do you what do you think it should be? Because we just want to know how to run it bal- in a balanced way in our games. And 15 kilos is pretty freaking heavy, and it makes sense considering the size of the weapon. Yeah. I'm I'm down with that. <laughs> A nice big 5d6 cone of fire. That's it. Boom. Yeah, I'm, I have no problem with that at all. Um, okay. Um, Praetorian86 has a question about the mortar on page 40. And he says, listen, the mortar, he likes it a lot. He says, and it, it describes how, how you can load the weapon either with a magazine of shells or you can actually pump each shell in by hand. Um, is that mostly just for fluff or are there actual game mechanics to this? I mean, it's basically what he's wondering is, if a character using a mortar with a magazine could obviously then use feats like double attack um, or a rapid shot, but a character loading shells by hand, could they not do this? No, I think it's really just flavor, to be honest with you. Cool. I mean, besides, it's, you know, get that, you know, get that, sh- that shotgun chunk. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's juicy flavor. That's RPG flavor. Yeah. I like. Yeah. Easy enough. And, um, yeah, but I, I like the mortar. We had we had several people comment that they that was one of the weapons they really enjoyed having. But far and away, the weapon that's gotten the highest amount of praise, Praetorian also took the time to say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for including the rotary blaster cannon. Vader's son Duncan said that as well. Several other people have said we love this weapon since the first time we laid eyes on it. We love it. Um, but there is one question about it. Now, for those following along at home, the Z6 rotary blaster cannon, page 40 of Galaxy at War. Um, it states that you, you increase your area attack to two by four squares when you brace the weapon. But it's unclear to some people, particularly Babs and RD, um, based on the wording, if you do that, do you still gain the normal benefit from bracing? In other words, moving that penalty from minus five to a minus two? Or is it so you get that in addition to the modified area, or do you choose one or the other? No, it, it's, it's an, in addition. So. Okay. You move from minus five to minus two, and you get this benefit. The sort of the flip side is that if you don't brace, the penalty is even worse, right? It goes down to minus ten instead of minus five. So, um, increasing it by two squares, I didn't feel like was enough that I had to also uh, kill your accuracy with that. So, yeah, when I when I was designing, I was like, you know, two by four, that's a cool, you know, little benefit. You get one extra guy typically, um, and no need to to penalize you by making you miss out on the accuracy bump. More DACA. I agree. It makes it makes good sense. And I mean, we're talking about. I mean, this this is a this this weapon is incredibly expensive. Okay, it's very heavy. This is a 16 kilo weapon. So no, man, I that that makes total sense. Um. Okay. Speaking of uh, of the chunk, uh, John and Rodney, uh, Niltz had a question about the scatter gun on page 40. He says, okay, this seems to be the slug thrower equivalent of the CR-1 blast cannon from The Force Unleashed on page 198. They both have the same special damage rule, and they work on the same principle, which is basically a Star Wars shotgun. But the scatter gun is not listed as having a splash of one square, whereas the blast cannon does. Was the scatter gun intended to have a splash radius, or is it one of those things that the splash radius on the blaster cannon is a result of the fact that it's an energy weapon? Uh, yeah, this is basically one of those things where the, you know... Typically, um, 
blaster weapons are just better than regular weapons. So, right. yeah, there's um, this is a case where uh, the scattergun's not supposed to have a splash. It's just not as good as the blast cannon, but this is something you might arm your NPCs with. Gotcha. Or, you know, it, it's relatively light and cheap, so you might decide to take one just for uh, just for kicks. No pun intended. Indeed. Um, <laughs> backup weapon. Nice backup weapon that can scare the crap out of people. I always love reading those news stories about guys that scare thieves out of their homes with like a mop, you know, because they use the chick chick, you know, on the self-squeezing mops. Yeah, I remember reading, uh, just to sidetrack for a quick second, I remember reading, uh, I think it was a study, it's, it's, it's that sound, it's, police actually say it's one of the best deterrents to theft. Because crooks hear that and they think, oh crap. Because <laughs> beauty of a shotgun, you ain't got to be accurate. You just got to no. be close. No. Yes. That's hilarious. Okay, continuing on into uh, skipping ahead for a sec into the armor section. There was some great armor in this, um, and everyone was lo- everyone was absolutely loving the fact that the Katarn class commando armor finally got included, and um, that that in particular uh, was on page forty four. But the wording left a couple people confused, and there was some people who wanted some clarification. First and foremost. Is Katarn armor medium armor or is it heavy armor? Because it, it, it's listed obviously as as medium armor in the table, but the wording mentions heavy armor proficiency. Uh, yeah, basically, what it is a medium armor. Just to wear it and get the benefits, basic benefits of it, you have to have the medium armor uh, proficiency. But if you have the heavy armor, you get the extra bonuses on top of that, which is to say the basically the benefits of the helmet package. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's. It's just that you don't gain you, if you're not proficient in heavy armors. You don't really gain the full benefit of wearing it, but you can wear it and get by. Makes sense. And even, okay. dude, even if even if it didn't have its special abilities, I mean, for Pete's sake, this is a, a plus nine armor bonus armor. It's one of the more powerful medium armors in the game. Plus four to, to fortitude. That's that's huge. And the way you described it is kind of how I read it, but it's 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 good to clarify. And I think it's an interesting mechanic that you guys say. It seems to be a recurring theme, especially going back to some of the martial arts feasts, where you say, okay, if you have this ability, or if you have this thing, here's what it does for you. But if you have this, it's going to do even more. And um, I, 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 ah, $10 worth. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, I like that theme. That seems to be pretty good. Excellent. Okay, the Ascension Gun. Now, uh, IKI had this to ask regarding the Ascension Gun, which is page page thirty seven thirty eight. Um, I know this got statted out. Correct me if I'm wrong, Rodney. This was in a web enhancement a little while back. Um, I think for a minis enhancement, they statted it. Yeah, out. a minis preview actually. Okay, it was a minis preview. They statted this out a while back, and a lot of us, myself included, were extremely happy to to see this in here finally. Um, it's so iconic, uh, and and I, I, for anyone who like, enjoys the the initial films um, in terms of episodes one, two, three, and. IKI says, I'm very happy to see this, this piece of equipment but the, in the rules, but I had a few questions. Now, in the previous edition, the grappling dart launcher was a weapon enhancement um, to this item. Now, can we do the same thing in Saga Edition? And if we were to add it, what would be the emplacement point cost? Um, uh, well, well I, th- I think the way that you're going to end up using this is uh, by doing the whole uh, combining two weapons thing, putting mm-hmm. one item into another. Um, I, you know... I think the ascension gun is strong enough to stand on its own rather than making it a modification. Uh, and plus, I the interesting thing is the ascension gun actually wasn't originally slated to be in this book, but I added it at the last moment when I was doing the 
um, variable blaster rifle and the heavy variable blaster rifle uh-huh. uh, because they also had the uh, grappling launchers. And that These two are, are straight out of the Clone Wars animated series. And I was like, you know, I think it would be cool. Actually, I think only the heavy one has the uh, grappling launcher. I'm not sure, though. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, only the heavy one has it. But I, you know, the clones shoot the spike and they slide on it like a zip line. I was like, that's that's pretty awesome. We got to put that in there. And once I'd finished the mechanics, I was like, you know, this might be a good time to put the ascension gun back in. So I wrote that up real quick and included it as well uh, after we'd already included the uh, the DC-15A uh, rifle. So um, yeah, if you want to uh, combine two weapons using those uh, rules, then that would be the best way to do it. But Otherwise, there are no plans to include this as a as its own modification. Okay. Now, the second part of his question, and I, I, I don't, I'm not sure what he's talking about because I don't read this at all. Um, and uh, maybe he, maybe the wording's misrepresented. But just to clarify it for those who may have experienced confusion with it, he's he's saying that in the text it says you can shoot the weapon at a target, but there's no expl- mechanical explanation for what effects are on the target. I I figured that by that meant the target meaning a wall that you're shooting the grappling hook into. Um, so basically, he wants to know: Can you actually use this thing against a person? Can you use like the pin or the trip feet with it, like the whip? Um, and lastly, what action does it take to to shoot at the surface and hold on to a grapple gun while ascending or descending? Uh, well, I don't. I'm trying to remember if we actually say that you can shoot it at someone. I, I, don't I, I, I don't think you can. can. There, some of the wording mentions shooting the gun at a target, but it, it, to me it's clear that it's talking about shooting it at a wall or a, you know, something to obviously hook the hook into. Oh, I yeah. see. It says you know, tethering the weapon to the target, right? Yeah. It, it means a, a physical solid object. If you want to shoot it at a person, that's something that your GM is going to have to adjudicate because you know, depending yeah. on the situation, it might make perfect sense for you to shoot into the you know, clone commander that's got the heavy armor on that you can reel yourself up on. But it doesn't really make any sense if you're shooting it into the, you know, Lerman scout that's up there. And <laughs> not, yeah, so I think that's a one best left up to the GM. And uh, as for action required, it, it doesn't take any action. But I would say that you probably can't fire the weapon uh, while you are still moving along the line. Cool. Would it, would you would you have a, have a move action to to ascend or descend with it? No. Oh Just, well. Yeah, I'd, I'd say I'd say move action would be fair to uh, you know travel along your zip line. So, you know, I mean, if I'm if I'm shooting at thirty squares, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, just moving along it. I mean, if it's going to be an instant action, that's one thing. But is this one of those things that really should be GM adjudication based on the situation? Or? Uh, no. Um, so basically, once it's tethered, uh, it can pull you up at a speed of twelve squares per round. That's really no action right there. Right. So, so basically, no. you so, fire it, activate it, and it pulls you. So the gun's doing the work, not you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, it's just like just like what we see in the Phantom Menace, right? Yeah. That then that, that 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 does make some sense, and it actually adds a new dimension to it. So I like that a lot. Very cool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, typically, though, like if you're if you're going to be sliding on a zip line, you're gonna have to spend a move action to at least initiate that movement, right? But the and then like having it pull you up. You fire the weapon, but you really can't do anything else while it's pulling you up. So it's not like you can take any other actions, anyways. Makes sense. Now, moving to a bit uh, heavier stuff, um, uh, Raving Dork and, I- and IK both had a related questions regarding the glowing defoliator vehicle weapon, which I'm assuming this is the one we see from the Clone Wars cartoon. Um, and they were curious to know what is the the area of effect 
the range uh, and the range of, of a glowing defoliator weapon in, in both character scale and starship scale. Uh, this is on page 67, by the way. And uh, IKI had a related question. He was curious to know, considering what this thing does to organisms, what would be its effects on the living equipment and the starships of the Yuzen Vong? Ugly. Um, well, that yeah, that is that is a, an interesting question that may not be answered until we see that in the eventual New Jedi Order animated series or whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, honestly, this is one that we included uh, for more Clone Wars content, and so um, what happens when it is used on Yuzhen Vong? Well, I would say it'd probably be pretty nasty because it affects living creatures and it literally burns them up. Um. Basically, the the real answer is that uh, it it travels at the speed of story, right? Which is to say that it affects <laughs> as much space as you need it to. Um, no, sorry, well, it's, 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 it's almost. But no, seriously, it's almost a plot device. It's almost an encounter hazard when we see it in the show. So, I mean, that's that's fine with me. But I mean, if you, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I could have sworn that we actually included this somewhere, um, but unfortunately it is escaping me at the moment, so maybe not. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I'm going to have to defer on this one because uh, I honestly don't know the answer off the top of my head. That's fine. We It's it's maybe something we can come back to or, or get an answer to later on, and no worries. Sure. No worries. Since, for Pete's sake, dude, it's not, you know... God, you you think you think you could you know talk to us about stuff? You know, there's there's so little we have to talk about. Indeed. Not like we're asking. Not like we're asking for the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow. Uh, European or African? European. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> well, to kind of uh, to to round out um, the the more basic equipment in in the hardware chapter before we move on to some of the more exciting stuff, um, there were were several quick questions. Um, that Raving Dork had that were kind of were, were kind of brought forward by other people that he gathered together. Um, he had one question first and foremost about the scatter gun, uh, which again page forty forty one. Uh, per his text, this gun it, it deals no damage to a target at medium range, but he wants to know can it still hit targets at medium range just doing no damage? In other words, can I use feats, talents, and other abilities that activate upon hitting a target, but not necessarily dealing damage to the target at medium range? I'm going to go with no on that one. Uh, it, the reason it doesn't do any damage is because it's not hitting the target at medium range. <laughs> it's so scattered, right? It's not like, oh, you threw threw gravel at me. That hurts, right? It, yeah, it's it's dissipated by that point that I, I don't think that counts. Yeah. It's a bit twinky. Um, very nice. Okay, one of the things I, I was very glad to see statted out more in character scale now were the vehicle fire effects. Um, it's one of my favorite things to use in Starship Combat. And the vehicle fire effects that we have here in this new book are on page 67. And Artie had a question about them. He says, it says on page 67 that the effects of vehicle fire effects, the effects last until the end of your next turn. But then it says the vehicle can make no attacks until the start of the commander's next turn. So if you activate a fire effect you essentially get it for two rounds. Now, you definitely can't attack that first round, but can you commence attacks during the second round while that fire effect is still up? Um, yes, but basically what you're doing at that point is falling into a rhythm where it's up for two rounds, down for a round, up for two rounds, down for a round, right? So Got it. uh, it's, you know, the, the commanders would still have to spend actions to actually make attacks, for that, in, in order for that to work, and I, I guess 
you know, if you want to do something cheesy with readying actions and what have you, so that oh, their turn starts, but their turn's not over yet, so we still got the benefits of the whatever. That's, I mean, that's fine. But I would rule that since that effectively bumps you up to the initiative before um, the commander, that that like anyone other than the commander can't really gain any benefit from it. Is what I'm trying to say. That makes sense. Okay. Um, the shock stick, uh, page 37, to kind of round up some of RD's uh, equipment questions. Um, <clears throat> now, this to me seems like th- this could have been a typo error. It could not have. But if, if it's ruled one way, it could present some changes in the way we, we do, especially vehicle uh, enhancement and combat. So I felt it was a decent question to at least touch on. The shock stick, per page 30 weapon, it is a large weapon. Um how, per the table. However, the text notes that you can mount it on a rifle. Um, so, is this just a one-off for that particular weapon, or can we generally mount large weapons on rifles? Sorry, I had my, my mic muted. Um, it is a specific thing for that particular weapon. It, it is basically that you can take the shocking part off the end of it and mount it as a bayonet, and that's what makes it Got special. Got it. Got it. That makes sense. And one last equipment uh, question from RD, um, kind of a bit esoteric, a little twinky. Uh, the the Bothan weapon template, Kotor, page seventy eight. He's curious to know how does this interact with shock boxing gloves? I can't imagine a Bothan making a pair of shock boxing gloves, but still, he's curious to know how would this interact with uh, shock boxing gloves? Is my unarmed stun damage increased by one die while my lethal unarmed damage is decreased by one die? How does that work? Or, or do they interact at all? Personal thought, I'd have to say they I would have to say they wouldn't interact. That's but that's just my stab in the dark. I I mean that that's kind of that's kind of but that's what where that's where I would go with it because the shock boxing gloves the thing is they don't they don't do damage on their own. It's just your unarmed damage. You know what I mean? Right. And since most cases you're only doing one die, it doesn't really seem like there's much of a trade-off to get the bonus. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. That's that's pretty much it, right? You're not. Act- they don't actually have their own damage. They are merely additive to your own uh, damage. And um, if you give me one second, I can double check and make sure that's the actual correct answer. But uh, I believe that to be the case. Okay. Excellent. Well, while he's taking a look at that, um, before we continue on to some of the the juicier bits we had for this discussion, um, we're going to shut down for just a brief sec and take a step into a very important place where we're going to examine a fragment. A fragment from the... Welcome, Jedi Masters, to Fragments from the Rim. How may we be of service to you today? Hi, this is Alex. And Trevor. This is segment number 30 of Fragments from the Rim. For this segment... I've chosen to talk about Conceal Force Use from page 58 of your KOTOR Campaign Guide. This comes from the Keep Tail Talent Tree. Once again, you need to be a Jedi Master, a Sith Lord, or a Force Disciple if you want to choose this, unless you are part of this tradition. This talent says, You have learned to use the Force without telltale gestures, reducing the disturbance created in the process. Whenever you make a use the force check, as a swift action, you can make a deception check to convey deceptive appearances in order to conceal the effects of your force use. Normal modifiers for the deception's complexity still apply. I really like this talent, because it gives you a way to create a character during the dark times of the Rebellion era who can hide from 
the dark side force users or use the force without making it obvious that they're using it, which is often one of the weaknesses of the Jedi in that time period. I think there's just a great many role-playing opportunities and interesting things that a creative character could do using this talent. Over to you, Trevor. Today, I'm going to talk about the Echoes in the Force talent from the Jedi Investigator talent tree on page 20 of the Jedi Academy Training Manual. You can use the far-seeing power on a location instead of on an individual creature, peering into the location's past to view events that occurred there. Unlike the normal use of the far-seeing power, you are actually looking into the location's past, and you must be standing in the location being viewed. The target DC for your use of force check is 20, plus 1 for each day into the past that you attempt to scry. When you look into the past, you need only specify a time and a number of days, as you can sense tremors in the force that focus your visions on meaningful events that day. Now, I think this is a really excellent role-playing talent. I can see that either a character who's really heavily into being a tracker or a bounty hunter or some sort of investigator would use this, and this would allow the GM to create the backstory matter and make it actual in-game story. So I just have this image of a guy standing in a room and using the force, and all of a sudden the room comes alive and he watches what happened three days ago. He sees the, the dark Jedi who's camped there talking to the Imperial agent, and they're discussing what they're going to do or where they're going to go next, allowing that Jedi and his party to then follow the dark Jedi or you know where he was, allowing the story to progress. Or I can see a GM giving this to an NPC who's your mentor, who's your who's your Jedi advisor, whether you have a Jedi in the party or not, just the, the old Jedi who's there to help you out, doing the same thing, taking backstory elements and allowing them to be put into the game in a much more immersive manner so they're not as dry as just historical notes the DM mentions to people or stuff that you find off the cuff through gather information. It's a live, visceral, interactive story that's growing in front of you. So I think it's an excellent mechanic, but it has a much better uh, fluff factor. Anyways, if you have any questions or comments, please uh, send Alex or I an email at order66 underscore fragments at rogers.com. And until next time, have fun gaming. Beautiful. How about Fantastic. that? Those guys. You know, that was one of those times nice. when they forgot to put the little ending. Thank you for choosing Fragments from the Rim. Oh, see, Alex Trev, production quality seriously lacking, guys. Come on. Uh, <laughs> I'm 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 staggered. This is this is something else. Right. Uh. So are Thank we you, we're continuing uh, in the same vein with cybernetic enhancements now as going forward through the equipment and all that. Yeah. Yes. Um, dude, okay, along with martial arts, everyone seems to be screaming praises about cybernetic enhancements and the coolness of advanced cybernetics in this book. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the guys, especially who are part of the, the, um, the, the Star Wars Saga Edition um, equipment modification community and the, the build community, they, they're just, just drooling over it. And we have a few questions in that vein, if you guys are up for that. Um, Fane Maka had a question he, he actually relating to a cool character concept he had he says okay i i he says first of all i love the cybernetic enhancements uh, stuff and i've got a character with, with just a stock yt 1300 and i plan to install advanced slave circuits and give slave recall would i be able to use this function of of the ship with a subcutaneous comlink 
In other words, could I summon my ship using the subcutaneous comlink? And furthermore, would this have to be a command that others could hear? The idea is he's thinking about using what's here to silently summon his ship to him. What do you guys think about that? From a role-playing angle? Sounds freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as long as it's the kind of thing that can be done over a normal comlink. Yeah, sorry, let me try that again. Anything that can be done over a normal comlink can be done over a subcutaneous comlink. So as long as it can be done over a normal comlink, then I say yes. Awesome. His, his question, though, was he was like, he wanted to be able to do it silently. So obviously with the slave circuit the way it is right now and, and the recall, doing it over a normal comlink, you'd have to give that command. Do you think it's too broken of a house rule to say he could like mumble it silently or do something yeah, with no, that? No, that's the whole point of the subcutaneous comlink is that you can communicate all the normal things, but do it so silently. Do, do that silently. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. Well, Fane Maka, congratulations. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Boom. Now, okay, a while back, Rodney, we had you on, and you were great enough to preview Galaxy at War with us um, in greater detail, and you pleasurably gave us uh, a wonderful preview of the whole thing with total cyborg replacements. Um, so we can now you know, make characters like Grievous and Vader, and that's just totally awesome. But there uh, are several questions that have come up specifically from Droid Dreamer uh, regarding total replacement cyborgs. And they, repl- they, they a lot of them will apply to, to regular cybernetic enhancements at well, at, as well, so it's kind of important to, to note that. But to encapsulate several of his questions into some more manageable forms, he wants to know, can, basically, can you add upgrade points to a cybernetic prosthesis? You know, maybe using the tech specialist feed or, or enlarging a standard cybernetic prosthesis. And uh, if so, would it appear as an out-of-the-ordinary prosthesis? Um, he's like, you know, this, this could be really cool for the right character concept if you've got, like, this big, funky-looking giant arm or something. Um, but, you know, is, is, that, is that a possibility? Well, I don't know if that's actually cool uh, or not. <laughs> the idea of, like, hi, I'm Han Solo, and this is my enormous robot arm. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, as you were saying that, I was thinking back to the image I saw for... Uh, Cyber uh, Cyberpunk splat book where this guy's got this big these big bulky load lifter arms so it's, yeah. you know, bigger than he is like yeah, okay <laughs> killer handshake yeah pretty much but m- mechanically are we able to add upgrade points to um, cybernetic prosthesis yeah um, basically they're treated just like any other device so anything you can do to a device you can do to a cybernetic prosthesis. Um, they, they've got an upgrade slot. They also have kind of a, a limited number of um, enhancements that they can actually use. So, you know, you can increase it, but it, you're really only going to be, you know, dealing with those about one, two, three, four, five, six different mods that you can possibly do to it. So if you really want to, I would say, though, that it, it completely uh, voids the warranty as it was. And... Uh, basically creates a, a highly visible cybernetic replacement, right? Basically, uh, I, I kind of imagine that if you if you think about uh, characters in the Star Wars universe that have, you know, cybernetic replacements that are, are visible, it could be, it, it's certainly reasonable to think about um, that they, they, they have very visible cybernetic replacements because it's something out of the ordinary, right? Like yeah. uh, Booster Tarek's, you know, glowing red eye, right? Right. As opposed to other cybernetics, which are you know very easily, um, you know very easily disguised as the originals. So Lieutenant. yeah, you can do it. It's a little weird. Um, you're not really going to gain a whole lot from it, I don't feel. But yeah. Okay. And 
you may have answered this by saying you know, pretty much you treat it like any other any other item, but he also wanted to know, can upgrades be added later, or can, do you have to add your upgrades at the time you install the prosthesis? Well, either way. Okay, cool. Um, he In a similar vein, what category does a standard cybernetic prosthesis fall into for the purposes of the tech specialist feed? Armor, device, droid, vehicle, weapon? He, his logic is saying I, he, he could see it falling into the device category, but also the weapon category, since you can use it for unarmed melee attacks. Uh, it's, it's definitely a device. Definitely a device. Got it. Uh, and he says, if it falls into the device category, obviously it does. What is the effect of adding enhanced strength to a standard cybernetic arm prosthesis? Would that make the PC stronger for doing things with that arm? No, it's really designed for devices that have, uh, you know, strengths for for things like um, determining how hard it is to move them, right? Like a like a vehicle or something like that. I'm really having a hard time. Uh, imagining why you would enhance strength on an object anyways. Um, but it's, yeah, th- it, this does not increase your strength score. Got it. Well, it's, as a GM, I could see a case of, okay, maybe, okay, you've got this arm with this boot, you know, this robot arm with boosted strength. Maybe a, f- a favorable circumstance bonus for, you know, a check to move something really heavy. Because, okay, that's where that extra strength would be applied. But that'd be about it. Yeah, that's that's not too broken, yeah. Okay, yeah, even if that. it even if it increases the strength of a device, it doesn't increase the strength of the person that the device is attached to. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, for a a total replacement cyborg, you know the Vayers and Grievouses of the world, um, how would tech specialists work? If if the total replacement cyborg is treated as droid for the purposes of the tech specialist feat, then could you add a plus two strength dex or intelligent to the total replacement cyborg? No, no. Basically, it, the cyborg hybrid. Uh, special quality says exactly what it means. It says you can use any type of droid system except, except yeah, except a processor. Okay. Um, and then you have certain you know additional things that go with your cyborg hybrid uh, chassis. But you basically can you you have the different I think when we say five different or six different uh, cybernetic replacements and yeah. you yeah six cybernetic prostheses. Uh, you can modify each one of those, but otherwise. Um, no, the, yes, it's a, they're, they're all individual devices. That makes sense. Now, in relation to that, if, if obviously you're, you can, you can modify those devices, they're technological items. If a total replacement cyborg takes damage, do you heal him with treat injury or mechanics? Yeah, it, that doesn't change at all. You still use treat injury. Makes sense. Well, you know, it takes a treat injury check to install the thing, not a mechanics check. That makes sense. Right. Um, <clears throat> and lastly, Wait. Uh, for the total replacement cyborg, do the weight of those droid systems added to the total cyborg replacement count for the purposes of carrying capacity? I would say so, yes. Um, now, the prostheses themselves do not, but any additional weight you add to them, I would say would. Okay, that makes sense. But obviously not the prosthesis. Okay. Right. Good sense. Good sense. All right. Well... There was one great, well, there were several, but one great new system that I thought was added to this book as far as design goes was the requisitioning system on page 69. Um, I think it finally puts some some mechanical backbone into something that I think some GMs have been doing, you know, kind of just sort of hand-waving the whole, you know, credit thing and saying, okay, you get this. And for a military campaign, it, it's so fitting, and I really like it. Um, who who worked on this particular section? And as far as design goes, was there any any real world examples you used to create it, or was it kind of just logic and off the cuff? Uh, well, this was designed by Eric Cagle, 
and nice. uh, developed by me, of course. And so um, what I gave him as a charge was I want you to basically sort of create a um, what should we have on any given mission kind of system. Mm. Uh, and he, he cooked up the actual, um, the actual system, and I uh, helped him work through some of the math. Uh, but yeah, for the most part, uh, it was just a, um, we were trying to find a nice system that would accommodate the kind of gear that we expect you to have. And, and you can see that in the, um, the requisition gear, pa- uh, the gear requisition pack with packages, um, you see the kind of things that we're expecting you to pull down for, you know, a character of that level. Fantastic. Or excuse me, a, a group of that level. Very nice. As for a specific question for the requisitioning system and kind of a sort of fluffy design question, Knight Errant JR wants to know, he says, he says, first of all, I love the system. Would the requisitioning system work if only part of the party was a military? I mean, for example, I mean, let's say you have like three Rebel Alliance members and a smuggler who's happening to be working with them. Would it work, I mean, would it work to only figure in the levels for the Alliance members for requisitioning and then like pay the smuggler based on the jobs from Scum and Villainy, uh, factoring in his level? Um, he says, also, by the way, am I right in thinking that the requisition system is also a pretty good way to figure up what home-built bad guys should be carrying so you can check your, you know, your inclination to give them too much cool stuff at once? Um, to the latter question, no. Uh, this was not designed with that in mind, and I can't comment at all on how well it translates over. Um, to the former question, however, um, I think you could mix like traditional character wealth gain with this requisition system, um, but the the trick is you'd have to limit the horse trading that would go on between your players and be like, <laughs> well, you know, I've got all these, you know, all this money, so I'll spend it on X, Y, and Z. You requisition us a bunch of guns and stuff so that I don't have to spend my money on that, and we'll buy a bunch of starfighters instead, right? Like that's that's where the real sticky issue comes in. Uh, yeah. The system is designed to assume that you're replacing your normal wealth acquisition with this as a party. Um, you could probably do it with the individuals, but just with the, you know, good faith understanding between your players that, hey, these are the the pieces of equipment that go towards these characters, not the entire party, right? That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I I was pleased with the requisitioning system, and it's one of those things when we get the new mechanic, it, it seems to you know say okay, this this replaces, and you know the existing wall system is kind of where it starts out with, and. Um, very, very, very interesting. So, good stuff. Now, moving forward just a little bit, um, bypassing briefly the military campaign section, which uh, is, is fantastic. And I'm, I'm assuming that's the section that Gary did a lot of work on. Um, and I, I'd like to come back to you later because there's some fantastic GM stuff here. And uh, getting past military units and moving into bases and battle stations. Now, Rodney, you said that this was one of your, your favorite sections to see added to the book that you, you really liked. Um, uh, Babs posted a comment he actually wanted us to say just tell you just how much you really love this section and so do i um you kind of touched on this briefly but let's take the time now tell us more about this what was the impetus for this section a lot of care looking at it was put into this and what are you hoping players and gms to get out of this um so there's actually two origins about this one which is the more modern origin and one which i will call the secret origin of the bases and battle stations chapter um basically I've been trying to find ways in, in books, really starting with Galaxy at War and going forward, trying to find ways to make the DM's, GM's job easier. And um, this is sort of the first step in that, and you'll see some more upcoming as well. 
because I kind of feel like we, we made a lot of progress on the player side of the screen, but we haven't made as much progress on the, the uh, GM side of the screen. So I knew I wanted to include something in here to help um, the Game Master run adventures with greater ease, right? Like we've, we've hit on a lot of systems um, in the, the first you know, couple of years of the Saga Edition books that add new systems to the, the game but aren't really making the, D, the GM's job any easier. So that's that. Um, as for the specific origins of this, this is a story that actually a lot of people probably already know, but a long time ago, in a freelancer's life far, far away, uh, I was but a young uh, college student and had completed my first assignment for Wizards of the Coast. In fact, it was my first freelance assignment ever. Uh, it was the Star Wars Heroes Guide. And I turned over the Heroes Guide, and they were happy with my work, and um, they commissioned me to be the lead designer on another Star Wars book. Uh, and it was uh, I was the lead designer, and then Owen Stevens and Brian Campbell were my two co-designers, and um, that book was called Ultimate Battle Stations. And it was supposed to be a big hardcover book about um, bases and battle stations and capital ships and Death Stars and what have you, right? And I had written basically what was going to be the core of that book, which was here is how to design bases and battle stations. And then I think Owen had a really big chapter on uh, the Death Stars, and there was a big chapter on other battle stations and and, an adventure chapter, etc. Well, when um, the revised... Uh, the Revised Core Rulebook supplements stopped coming, that book sort of became dead in the water. Uh, and then last year, when I was working on this book, I, I saw this as a good chance to look back on that work and see if I couldn't put together something that took the best parts of that and brought it back. So this is sort of my desire to resurrect that old project, but also I thought it really fit here because this is this is the kind of it was the kind of system that I had cooked up that I thought would make it easier for, you know, the game master to create scenarios that military characters are going to be going into. I mean, when I was working on Ultimate Battle Stations, I kept thinking, well, this is the kind of thing that your soldiers and and pilots and stuff like that are really going to interact with the most. So, um, in the end, the decision to put it in this book was partly because I, I saw it as a good opportunity to make the GM's job easier, but also to sort of take that project that I worked on a while ago and bring those ideas forward uh, and see that they got into the game uh, where they had basically been you know, sitting on a shelf for a while. Gotcha. So uh, I, it, ma- it makes sense. I mean, looking at it, it was clear it was crafted with some, with some care and, and some, I dare I say, some love. Um, but no, man, when I first read this, I, I don't know, John, what did you think, man? Cause when, when I first read this, I was like, wow, this is going to save me so much time. <laughs> I'll be honest. I really haven't a chance to do more than skim through it. I haven't really had a chance to really sit down and digest it. I'm looking forward to doing that. Cause it just from skimming through, it's like, okay, this is cool. This is very cool. And again, it's glad to hear that from Rodney that, you know, that work on, Ultimate Battle Stations didn't get lost to the ether. So, you know, here, you know, here's the core of it. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, most of it did. <laughs> but okay, uh, so the, was, so the, so the idea. Yeah, yeah. So I was able to basically go back and look at what we had we had thought was a good idea back then, and see how I could translate the Saga Edition, and it ended up working out really well. And I I think that if you're running a location based adventure, then this is a great starting point for that, no matter what that location is. Nice. 
Very nice. Excellent. Well, this kind of segues into into a, the last kind of sections of real questions we had from our, our listeners regarding some general design questions. And some of these are, are serious. Some of them are fun. Some of them are, are thought-provoking. Um, and first of all, um, Ick Moigigan wanted to know, just reading the book, he, he had a very serious question he came to us with, and he, he asked us very politely to, to make sure we included this. He wanted to know, how, how do you fit so much awesome into a single book without, you know, like the pages bursting into flames? Um, apparently, apparently, he was very excited. Is there, is there a mechanical process you use, a very large press? How, um, how, you know, how, how, how is that accomplished normally? Is it kind of like the, uh, you know, putting all the cheese in a cheese it, you know, with the big giant magnifying glass? Cheese it. <laughs> uh, honestly, I'm, I'm glad to hear people say that because it's you know these books are uh, they're a lot of fun to work on, but they are, I mean they are a lot of work, right? And uh, a ton of work goes into these. And I've sort of taken this philosophy, and and I've had this philosophy ever since I started working on uh, the Saga Edition books. Uh, I started working at Wizards really uh, as the the guy for the Star Wars line. I started saying to myself, you know, if I have a good idea. And I think it, it's going to belong, you know, in in the Star Wars role playing game. I'm just going to put it in there, right? I'm not going to try and save anything for later. And you know, occasionally I say, yeah, that'll fit better in this other book than in this book, right? But no, I, I've tried to avoid the the you know temptation to say, well, you know, we'll just do that down the road somewhere. So a lot of times it's just sort of this shotgun of ideas that that ends up making it into the book because I don't I don't want to wait, right? I mean, you never know what tomorrow is going to bring, and I, so far, we've been you know incredibly lucky to have so much success with the line and people liking the book so much. But you know, I was like, well, I, I don't want to wait until you know a year from now to put out you know whatever mass combat rules. So let's just put it out now. And yeah, it it's not a it's not a difficult thing to find space for something that I think is going to be an interesting idea. Awesome. It's certainly, I mean. Like when I look at things like the the requisition system, right? I'd much rather have that, you know, four pages in the book than four pages of random stat blocks because I'm starting to get to the point where I think our players between the campaign excuse me, between the campaign guides uh, have pretty much enough stat blocks, right? And so um, that's not to say there's not more coming, obviously, but uh, when I when it's down to hey, I have a cool idea, or hey, I can include five new kinds of stormtroopers. I'm just going cool with a cool idea. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I, I, I especially like Echo Base, the real time question of flipping it over because we always, this is, this truly is the, I have a bad feeling about this question that comes up every developer Ruh-ruh. podcast, you know? How do you fit so much awesome into a book? Mm-hmm. You know? So maybe we should turn it around at uh, Fiddleback's request and say, why is it that only the bottom half of page 35 sucks? <laughs> that's a matter of opinion <laughs> yeah there should be more sucking in this book i'm really yeah i'm I'm not pleased at the yeah yeah the, the bottom half of page 35 what what's up with that all that black space there i'm serious yeah to- totally serious sorry guys oh well we'll work harder next time <laughs> well building on to what you were just talking about um Infinity Doctor, he was curious because he, he said, you know, I, I'm kind of interested. He says, you know, I, I, he said, I like listening to, to some of the crunch, you know, and it, it helps a lot. But I, I really enjoy it when you guys start talking about some of the fluffier stuff. And he wanted to know, can you give us an idea of just how a book like Galaxy Wars put together? Uh, do, do you, did you start with the need to focus on a specific character class, like Soldier, and then just build a wish list based around that? Or do you have a very specific idea of, of what 
needed to what, what's needed to be in there already. Um, do people involved provide uh, full sections based on theme, and then you collate them, or do you work from a list and hand out topics to each other? How does that design process work? So basically, uh, speaking to Galaxy at War specifically, but a lot of this will apply to other books as well. Uh, Galaxy at War was born when I started thinking about uh, Scum and Villainy, and in fact. Um, this was back, gosh, like six months after I started working at Wizards. When I first outlined Scum and Villainy, I said, you know, this is actually a pretty cool format. I could do the same thing for, you know, another big topic like like warfare, right? And and if you'll remember that I said that Scum and Villainy was sort of my love letter to West End Games, D6 mm-hmm. Star Wars, this is sort of my love letter part two, right? Because, I mean, everybody loved all those old um, books like, you know, the Rules of Engagement, the Rebel Spec Force Handbook, and... Um, you know, any of the, the West End books that really focused on the military side of things. Now, you know, obviously I didn't have the space in this book to get quite as specific as that, but, uh, you know, I wanted to go back and sort of compile what I consider to be the greatest hits of ideas um, for, you know, a book like this. So, long story short, uh, I was outlining Scum and Villainy, and I was sort of pitching that book to my boss and to, you know, all the other people that I had to. Uh, get to buy off on the idea of the book, and uh, I pitched Galaxy at War at the same time. I said, you know, I've got this idea for a book, Scum and Villainy, and if you like it, here's also this idea for a book called Galaxy at War. You know, knowing full well at the time that it would be well over a year before we'd even start thinking about working on Galaxy at War. Right. Um, but I had kind of a basic outline at that point, and then I fleshed it out over the course of several months until I had what I considered to be a pretty solid outline for the book um, and then when it came time to pick people out to work on it I contacted my freelancers I contacted uh, John because he'd been putting out uh, some good stuff on a regular basis showed a degree of both system mastery and uh, ability to communicate and so that was one of those deals where um, I was able to sort of reach out to someone from the community uh, and interestingly enough this podcast is actually the first time that John and I have ever spoken voice to voice We've never spoken on the phone. Uh, the wonders of the modern world, right? Via email, yeah, we've been able to communicate everything just fine. So, And it's something you've said before in the past, and I'll definitely vouch for this, is that Rodney does not read people's house rules files. Yeah. I know this because in my in my files, it's I you know, the first email he sent is, you know, we've kind of known each other through you know, websites for a while, and I have no idea what your name is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so yeah. So once I contacted all the freelancers, uh, I'm able to dole out assignments. And typically, I dole out assignments by topic. Uh, although occasionally I'll split topics among people. Okay. Um, and then the freelancers have X amount of time to get their writing done. Uh, I'm simultaneously doing design of my own uh, for the book. And then once everything comes back, I stitch it together into a semi-complete book. Um, do my development pass. Um, and then hand it off to editing. Goes through editing, goes through managing editing, and then goes to typesetting. The funny thing is, when a book gets to typesetting, it may not look anything like you thought it did. For example, um, Galaxy at War was one that when it came out of editing and everything, uh, it came up a little short. And just the way that just the way that pages fell, right? You know how we have to do everything in two-page spreads because of the way our chapters work. So, you know, we would have, oh, well, we've got three quarters of a page here just because of the way the the words and art and everything came out so at that point i ended up you know doing more writing and doing extra design and that's that's the point in the process where we added in some new clone wars things and and could kind of add in the latest and greatest things that we learned about uh the clone wars universe etc 
Uh, and then that's how a book becomes a law, actually. And uh, there you go. <laughs> I'm just a bill. Only oh, a man. Yeah, see, I caught that as soon as you said oh, it. Oh, man. I, like, I, I took, took me a second. I finally caught that. Memory lane, dude. Oh, wow. Conjunction, junction, man. Conjunction, junction. What's your function? Fantastic. <laughs> Those were the days. Those were the days. Well, we've talked about how you create it and a lot of what's in it. Brev uh, sent us several silly questions, but one of them he really wanted to know. He said, okay, this is a great book. Insert appropriate butt kissing and or uniform praise here. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Brev. But if you could have added one more bit of information regarding Galaxy at War, what would it have been and why? And in a similar vein, Infinity Doctor asked, he said, was there anything you really wanted to get into the book, but you eventually had to cut because of space restrictions? And also, how do you prioritize items when deciding what stays in the final draft? Uh, John, was there anything that you wanted to see in the book that we didn't put in? Um, no, I think pretty much covered everything, so... Yeah, I'd, I'd like to tell you that there was a bunch of stuff that left, was left on the cutting room floor, but that's really not the case. The nice part about it is that most of the things that I wanted to include were pretty small and discreet things, right? Like if I wanted to include a you know, requisition system, that's something we can do in three or four pages and not have to worry about it taking up a huge amount of space. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that this, I, I'm very satisfied with the Galaxy at War. Um, I don't know. I mean, you always you'd always like to have more, but... This is, you know, one of our larger size books, so we got our full yeah. uh, complement of adventure content in here as well. So, uh, yeah, I am, um, I'm relatively, relatively pleased with uh, the way it came out. I, I can't really think of anything that was, uh, that was left out. I, th I think we've got some really great stuff in here uh, from, you know, a fluff perspective. We've got some really good stuff in here from a crunch perspective. So. Uh, if there's anything that other people felt was left out, you know, they they're welcome to to let me know, and I'll see if we can get get it in a in a future book. But <laughs> yeah, I like I say, it's uh, I I think it's a very very well rounded book, um, especially because it, it has a lot of new, small, and and discrete systems. Yeah. Now I've got a development question that I was echoed by IRL Potato from Dublin. It's because when you guys are building this, when you're developing it. Do you use it? What do you guys use for indexing and such? I mean, is there is there like a, an official version of like a like an Omega Dex or something like maybe internal to Watsi for for tracking information and cross referencing? Um, you know, and and you know, what, what do you guys use to keep track of all the rules that are out there and see what's going on? I mean, just your your personal libraries or um, anything like that. Also, what if any PC tools do you uh, do the pros use for Saga when you guys actually GM and run a game? Uh, well, the the big index is called my brain, and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. brain and library. Yeah, basically, um, the nice part about Saga Edition is that we, since we put out a book about every two months, it's easy to kind of keep up with um, most everything. Uh, I believe our editors have access to um, basically a big spreadsheet that they use to double check um, things like talent prerequisites and. Even like so, the editors have by far the hardest job when it comes to Saga Edition because they have so many things to keep track of, and and um, like one of the things that they do is they have a, a big spreadsheet that has a listing of you know all the talents and feats, but also tells you which of those talents and feats are supposed to go on things like the attack options line. Like mm -hmm. if I named a random talent from a random book, could you tell me if it goes on the attack options line? Well, most of the time I couldn't, but they have a they keep track of stuff like that. Um, so. For the for the rules side of things, it's pretty much my brain is what I have to have to keep track of it uh, when doing development. And 
luckily, we've learned a lot about the way design works. So theoretically, um, we're able to build some things that don't uh, overlap with other mechanical systems as much, mm-hmm. um, and which creates less problems, I think. Uh, and plus, after the last round of Core Rulebook Errata, we've got a really, really solid basis to build off of. So, Yeah. It's a- um, yeah. Excellent. In your in your home games, I know we recently had had uh, Sam and, and Chuck on, and they spent some good time talking to us about some of the electronic aids they use in their home games. When you guys are actually GMing and running games, do you use any 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 PC tools, any electronic tools to actually help you run games or GM when you're actually playing the system you create? John, um, not too much. Not too much, really. I mean, mo- it's most of the time it's just okay. Break out the minis, maps, pencil, pencil and paper. And get to gaming. So, I think the first time I used any kind of PC, you know, PC tool or aid was a very cool opening sequence for a con mod I wrote by uh, Acida Fenneman. Thank you again. <laughs> so, the, uh, yes, he made crawls. That was a lot of yes. fun. That was that was a lot of fun. Um, I downloaded recently an initiative tracker on my iPhone. <laughs> Uh, which is actually terribly useful. And you can actually take pictures of minis or people, and it assigns them to the individual in initiative. So, yeah, very, very nice. Roddy, do you use any technological solutions when you game, or are you, are you an old-school guy like John? I'm pretty much an old-school guy. Um, in fact, even when I run D&D with our plethora of DDI tools, I don't usually use any of that in the middle of the game. Uh, typically for me, the most uh, electronic preparation I do is actually before the game. Uh, and mm. I told you guys about this before, but I've actually, for my own personal game, started taking um, our stat blocks and converting them over to a more D&D 4th edition style, which is to say it breaks out all the different effects of the powers and, and, and talents and feats, etc., uh, in a format that I can sit there and look at and read without having to cross-reference things in the middle of a of a game. And um, hindsight being 2020, I wish I'd been able to put something like that into uh, Saga Edition early on. Um, but uh, yeah, so basically, I I convert stats over to a format that that breaks out the description of talents and feats and such. And um, that's that's about it. From that point on, it's all dice and miniatures and uh, Imaginations. <laughs> <laughs> to use your imagination. Very cool. Well, coming back to a couple of the... And um, again, we're rounding up towards towards the end of our discussion here. But, but coming back to... I kind of wanted to leave a couple uh, chapters in this book towards the end of discussion. Because I think they kind of lead to kind of the, the, the ending I want to I wanna have. In particular, the chapters regarding regarding military units um, and and military campaigns, which I think were some of the the fluffiest chapters in this book, um, in terms of, of just giving you you ideas as opposed to a lot of crunch. And we had a couple questions, um, starting with the the military units uh, section. Um, Babs wanted to know. He says, um, you, you you write uh, write sections about several armies. You know, the, the alien Nova Guard, etc. But there weren't any any crunch and any RPG rules with these these um, these units. What was the reasoning behind that? Well, the truth of the matter is that most of that information exists elsewhere, and this chapter was really designed to say, "Hey, here's some fluff that you can sort of lay over the crunch that we provide elsewhere." Like you know, we give you the some information on rank structure that you can use our our rank and uh, requisition systems with, right? And with a few exceptions. 
uh, like maybe the Eilon uh, in particular, we kind of give you everything you need uh, elsewhere, either in this book or other books, to you know to play those characters, right, and to to do those things. So I didn't really feel like it was super necessary, and um, frankly, I I like the idea that this is a more uh, creative chapter in that it's supposed to get your your own juices flowing and get you to thinking about designing your own uh, organizations as well. So for the most part, it's it's just a result of the fact that there's nothing in here with with maybe the exception of the Eilon themselves that I feel really requires you to have any specific unique mechanics outside of what we already have, right? I mean, like, we've got the Republic rocket jumpers in here, and in the Ninth right. Republic book, we've got a whole rocket jumper talent tree, right? right. So th- didn't really need to do anything else. It makes sense. Well, it, it makes sense to me. I, I was actually pleased that just the, I, I call them, I kind of refer to them as skins. It's something you can throw over it, you know, that, that works with, Very much with the so. frame that's there. And I like that a lot. Now, Knight Errant Jr. commented in regards to this, you know, the, the military units chapter. It's set up very much, very much like the Fort's Traditions chapter in Jedi Academy, and um, he likes that format. He and the fact that it puts together these these cool Star Wars organizations here on the same footing as Force Traditions. Is this um, kind of a, a standard thing that y'all are leaning towards now? Will there be other organizations aside from you know the Force Traditions and the military organizations that get this kind of two-page write-up in future books? Yeah, uh, in fact, several of our other books will have uh, this kind of thing in it. Just because, A, it's a very clean format, and B, it's, I feel like it's just about the right amount of information for you, you know, to, to, build, a, uh, to build something off of, right? So, um, yeah, you'll, you'll definitely see more like this in the future. Well, like, you, like you said, it's a skin. It, it's a building block. Okay, well, I'll make, you know, this military organization. You could also use a foundation for, okay, I want to make my own little group. Well, they're kind of like this. Well, here's this idea. What can I, you know, build on that? So, great tool for a GM. Oh yeah, that's why I like it. I think, and this is this is ultimately where where I'm leading to in talking about the the military campaigns chapter. Leading into that, John, when you talk about again, you guys have said again and again and again, this is the first step we're seeing towards books that are leaning heavily towards a GM perspective and giving the GM the tools they need and. I, I, what, what is your opinion? I would contend that, that that is not just a bunch of random tables and a bunch of of crunch that you can throw in. I think a good portion of that, you know, there, not not every GM is a master storyteller, unfortunately. And providing the the skins, the the fluff, the the knowledge there on a two page spread like it has here uh, can be incredibly beneficial. Is that a general design philosophy you're looking towards? In other words, talk to me about moving now into this this GM help attitude. Uh, Brev had a, had a question. He says, you know, this book seems to me, besides threats, to be the closest to a pure GM book that he's ever seen. Um, what are the plans in the future coming coming up with, with that philosophy, and how much of that was brought into this book? Oh, well, I, I wouldn't say that this is any more of a GM-focused book than, say, Scum and Villainy, but yeah, they're, they're both um, you know, very GM-focused. Really, it's just a matter of um, we've reached the point where there are a few things that I wish we had in the game to make the GM's job easier, and I'm going to try and get those things into the game. Uh, and like I say, I, I don't like to hold things back if I can find a good place to put them in, you know, sooner. So, uh, yeah, I, I really it's it's not any kind of um, great design philosophy shift, other than I've got some ideas for things that I think will make um, the DM the GM's life easier, uh, and you know. I, I want to get them into the game, so they're they're gonna go in there. 
Nice. Excellent, excellent. Well, that is, is kind of it comes into the end of our discussion, guys. I know I would, I would like to leave by saying, first and foremost, the, the very the last quarter of this book um, is I know what a lot of people were really jazzed to get, which was the, um, the, the basically the mini adventure. And the, there's an actual full-on adventure in this um, at, at the very end of the book, which is, which is Operation First Breach. Um, and re- reading through it, it seems like it's just a, a hoot of fun. I, I can't wait to run it. Um, and before that, though, there's several mini adventures similar to the Scum and Villainy format we had we had used to it. And you mentioned before, Rodney, that you know this was something you were really excited about, and it was very similar to the Scum and Villainy model. And um, I just want to thank you guys for taking the time to include that. We had a lot of comments about that as well. So very, very, very nice. And uh, yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. A lot of people are getting use out of it. Let's put it that way. I, adventure content is always kind of a a tricky thing, and I know we've gotten a lot of of um, I won't say complaints, but a lot of feedback from people who say, "Hey, why isn't there more? You know, why aren't there more adventures out there? Why don't you do standalone adventures? Or why are you putting this adventure content in my book?" But the fact of the matter is, this seems to be the best way that we can deliver it and actually reach the people we're trying to get it to. Uh, well, there you go. Fantastic. Well, first of all, it's the end of the show, and um, it's time, uh, John, buddy. Big congrats on your first development ever, man. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm tickled pink, Rodney. Thank you for taking the time to be on with us again, sir. Your your presence, as always, is a uh, a beacon of joy for us. Hey, you know it's my pleasure, guys. <laughs> and when 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 can we look forward to the next official Star Wars Saga Edition podcast? Uh, well, you see, insert sound <laughs> of me running away. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear! <laughs> yeah, believe me, I you know I love coming on you guys' podcast. I'd love to do my own, but uh, it's just a matter of time, uh, time, and, and resources, right? Because yeah. I do not know how to do these things, so I'm re- I must rely on other people that do know how to do such things in order to get it done. Gotcha. And we just do such a hell of a job here that you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a reason you guys are the any award winning. I, I was gonna I was gonna podcast. say, dude. You, you know you know we won an any award. That's like you know. Boom. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. And oh, what? By the way, Scavenger's Guide to Droid comes out, what, November 17th, I think? I think that's right. Uh, and that I cannot wait for. That's awesome. So, very cool. Guys, thank you again. This for is Daleks never listen to the Order 66 podcast. All listeners will be exterminated. Oh, sorry. That wasn't supposed to fire, but you know. Oh, boom. Thanks, man. Oh, okay. We wouldn't have a show if we didn't I'm have saying, a drink. Now. Boom, boom, boomity, boom, boom, boom. Drink, yeah. drink. Dalek drink Khan right interrupted me. Right at the end. Drink. <laughs> That's good. Guys, thanks. Yes. Again, no problem? Yes. You bet. Well, for all of you listening at home, we really want to appreciate it. For those who didn't have their questions answered this evening, I apologize. There were a great many of them. We actually got a lot that were non-Galaxy War related, and obviously we had to give preference to the GAW questions. Um, but um, we hope we were able to, to give credence. And I want to thank everyone who took the time to gather questions for us and to get them posted on the boards. It really helped out a lot. So with that, uh, on behalf of GM Dave and uh, all of our special guests, this is GM Chris wishing you peace, love, and good gaming. And keep them dice rolling. D20 Radio, where gamers roll.
www.d20radio.com. This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast, and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at StarWars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at Wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all names, pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast and its related website, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast.